Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We are in the book of Acts this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter 14. We will stand in one moment and take verses 21 through 28, the book of Acts, chapter 14. And if you are ready, or ready or not, please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Antalya. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Please be seated. Very rich, rich. uh, Just how many places they were traveling. How much was going on. This morning's message is entitled, Strengthening Converts. And I hope that um, the importance of that is not missed. Jesus said, go, therefore, make disciples of the nations. And we're seeing that in action here. They're going outside of Israel. They're reaching Gentiles and Jews alike. Humans carry God's message to humans. That's how God has arranged it. Humans tell God's side of the story. And humans influence humans to be Christ-like. Of course, these are humans that are born again and hopefully full of the Spirit. We go right to verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Uh, Sometimes I'll put an emphasis on a part of a scripture so that I won't have to make so many comments on it and take away from other parts, but they made many disciples. Fresh from the stoning. We are about 46, 47 A.D. after the birth of Christ. And uh, here, when he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, he returned to Lystra. He preached in Derby because he was stoned in Lystra. He went back into the city. He then goes to Derby, he and Barnabas. They now come back to the city from where they were stoned. Discouragement is a predator. I know how to deal with that, that beast. I do my job. That is the final response to discouragement. I'm going to do my job. For me, I am to be in this pulpit Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, and I am to be ready to be in this pulpit. Discouraged or not, I'm going to do my job. And hell hates this when you do this, when I do this, when the believer does not allow that predator to sink its fangs into them. 
Here Paul and Barnabas were not discouraged simply because there was a stoning. This is incredible. And this is almost, if I can say it that way, the Holy Spirit boasting of his ability to get us to overcome things that hurt, whether it is on the outside or the inside. If you don't have God's side of the story, then you only have Satan's side of the story. And we should not stand for that. Barnabas and Paul did not stand for that. So again, they come back to Lystra, the place where he was stoned. And they preached God's side of creation and God's side of life. Discouraged or not, they overcame it. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, and then coming to, to these other cities here. So once again, I want to emphasize this. Stoning did not stop them from preaching. What stops you from serving? As I think every Christian should ask this question. What stops us from doing our job? What stops us from getting it done? And when we identify those things, I think it is up to us to attack them in some form. Maybe you have a passive way of life and you do it that way, but get it done nonetheless. Maybe you're more aggressive. Saving souls from lies and errors about God with truth. That is evangelism. And it does not happen magically. It takes people with, with faith, fortitude, which is the outcome of faith. Stoning did not stop converts from believing either. Because when they came to Lystra, they made even more converts. They preached again. They didn't say to Paul, you know, you were stoned here for telling us about Christ. We don't want to hear it. You might get us stoned this time. We have to live in this city. You're going to go back to Antioch. We're here. But that's not what happened. They preached. They converted souls. And then they followed up with discipleship. It's not enough to see someone saved. Then what happens? If you leave them in an immature state, they are in jeopardy of falling away from the faith. Paul is going to tell them that we go through hardships and that you should continue in the faith. And so, to develop converts into servants, it requires human discipleship governed by God. Substandard teachings lead to substandard churchgoers. Satan loves that idea. Well, what are you going to do about it? It always comes back to us. We're always to take heed and made many disciples, it tells us here in verse 21. Converts that do not become disciples, again, are in serious jeopardy. Here in, in Derby, when they were there, we know that Gaius was, a man named Gaius, was, uh, became a believer. We know Timothy is here in Lystra. He becomes a believer. We have to remember that we cannot do spiritual work without spiritual power. And I think well, along with that is, why should we get any of the spiritual power? Especially if we're not listening to God, especially if we're not applying our faith. If you are in any trade or any profession, do you expect to excel in that trade or profession, or profession 
if you do not apply it, you know, use it or lose it. Skill is perishable. And the same in the spiritual world. If we're not in the word, if we're not in prayer, if we're not in fellowship, if we're not walking in agreement with the Lord, then where are we? What is the alternative? Spiritual empowerment is not automatic, and many times it it calls for pain. Matthew chapter 17 is when Jesus had taken three of his disciples up on the mount to be transfigured before them. And while he was away, the devil was doing his dirt down in the valley with the other disciples. When Jesus arrives and he casts out a demon that the the disciples could not cast out, they were troubled by that. And they asked him, why could we not cast him out? Quote, unquote. His response is in Matthew 17, 21. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You have to do something to be spiritually strong. It's not just automatic. It's not enough to just believe. There's work involved. And I think it is good advice to tell Christians, do your job. You want to, you want to overcome discouragement? Do your job. Don't allow your feelings to dictate anything to you. The facts, the faith, and then come the feelings. They return to Lystra. As I've been saying quite a bit already this morning, that's where Paul was stoned. The Holy Spirit now leads them to double back because it was necessary. So they had come to uh, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, and Lystra, chased out of all three of those. They go to Derby. That would be the, the extent of their uh, mission outreach. And then the Holy Spirit leads them to go back to all of those places where they had made converts because it was necessary. At Lystra, Paul had gone through Stephen's experience. Remember, they stoned Stephen, and Paul was a part of that. Paul infused these new churches with courage when he stood in their midst teaching. They knew about the bruises on his body, the death threats, the resistance, the discouragement. They knew that those marks on his body were the marks of the Lord. At Iconium and Antioch, there were shorter paths home, and there were less dangerous ways to get back to Antioch in Syria. And they did not take those paths, purposely taking the most dangerous and longer way back because it was essential that they strengthened the new converts turned them into believers. And they didn't have a lot of time. And that's going to come be very important for us when we get to it in a minute. But undeterred in these three cities were those who tried killing them for preaching Christ. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Well, I've been trying to strengthen souls this morning since I've been up here. Exhorting you to continue. Exhorting you to deal with that predator that will stop you from continuing, which is discouragement. David said, you know, uh, a thousand may fall at my right, ten thousand at my left. It shall not come near me. You see how he dealt with that? I can't. He couldn't account for everybody else falling, but he knew about himself. He knew that he would not fall. 
Satan hates when we are strengthened, whether we are strengthened by others or we draw close to the Lord to strengthen ourselves. This type of strengthening that Paul is giving them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, is to prepare them, not so much for life, but for life in Christ. Because unbelievers can be prepared for life, but it takes a man like Paul and Barnabas to come and strengthen them to believe. It is easier, easier to drag someone down than to pull them up. That's why the critic just gets away with being a critic lifelong. David, as I mentioned, encouraged himself, 1 Samuel 30. This is when they wanted to stone David for a disaster that happened under his leadership. How many Christians want to stone the pastor with their tongues, with their criticisms, because of something under his leadership? Now, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. Yeah, the temptation after the years roll by is why bother? They're going to do what they're going to do anyway. You can preach to your blue in the face. They're going to do what they're going to do. That kind of fatalistic attitude does not deserve any airtime in the heart of the believer. We are accountable for what we know, and we are to do our job. It says here that he encouraged them. They took encouragement from this man. Acts 20, in verse 2, we'll read, Now when they had gone over the region and encouraged them with many words. My point of referencing Acts 20 is Paul was wont to do this. He loved encouraging people, but they weren't wasted encouragements. They weren't encouragements from someone who didn't know what he was talking about. These were encouragements from a man who lived things that he preached. They, Paul and Barnabas, exhorted the new Gentile converts and the Jewish converts to make their life commitment to Christ and to stay there with it. It was not supposed to be a temporary stop in life, but permanent for all eternity. Even in a hostile, anti-Christian culture, which these were, these three cities, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, and Lystra, they were anti-Christ cultures there. Again, it is easier to take exhortations from one whose life exhibits the principles they claim to uphold. What is the opposite of encouragement? Well, obviously, everyone knows that answer. It is discouragement. I mentioned this Wednesday night about pessimists and critics. Critics will just, they're like snipers, just picking off encouragement from a distance. Twelve men were sent up from the desert of Moab into the land promised by God. Ten of them were pessimists. Ten of them, the ten pessimists, died in the desert of Moab. The other two, the two men of vision, the two men of purpose, they lived to heroically advance the will of God. To this day, we name our children after those two men, Caleb and Joshua. 
It is worth not being a pessimist. It is worth not being a critic. It is worth doubling down when you know you're right. If someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I think you're wrong. This is what I believe. If I really believe that person is wrong, I double down. I don't care. I don't care if you stop liking me. I don't care if you talk bad about me. I don't care. I'm going to stick by what I believe is right. I'm going to double down. Paul said we did not yield to them for one hour. They were wrong, and we weren't going to give them a little bit. We weren't going to say, well, you know, you got a good point there, when there was no good point. A lot of people can't handle that. They want you to give them some credit for a wrong opinion or one that you disagree with. I don't say that you have to be nasty in doing these things, but I do believe we need to be firm. Then, then there is not only discouragement, the opposite, or antithesis of encouragement, but this false encouragement, and we all have to be careful of this. I'm sure we've all been guilty of this at one point or another. This error lies in speech without the spirit. If someone comes and says, listen, you know, uh, I just had something very traumatic happen to me. And it's going to affect my future. Well, that does not give us the right to say to that person, don't worry about it. It will be all right. It does give us the ability to say, trust God. Deal with that predator. Do your job. If it is some sickness or unemployment or financial problem, you still know what you're supposed to do. Trust God. Uphold the gospel. Preach Christ. Continue in the faith. Those other things are going to run their course. Why drag everyone down with you when you don't have to? That is presumptuous sin. And well-meaning people often say to friends undergoing a trial, Everything will be all right. I think we need to discipline ourselves and be careful that we don't say those kind of things without qualification. That variety of optimism is not satisfactory. I rather encourage people to listen. If you're going through this trial, if you, let's just say it's a terminal sickness. If you're going to go out, go out in front of everybody loving the Lord, serving the Lord. What would you rather have someone tell you? Would you rather have someone tell you, don't worry about it, it's going to be all right, when you know there's going to be a lot of problems? Or would you rather say, grab the bull by the horns, you have to, or else he's going to pin you, and you are strong enough. Believe me, because I ask you to believe in Christ, you are strong enough because of Christ to face whatever comes your way. To continue in the faith, he says to them here in verse 22, let's not make an obvious verse obscure. That's what it means to continue in the faith. It would not be necessary to say this if there was no possibility of discontinuing in the faith. There's a great, great possibility of discontinuing in the faith. Have you anyone, has anyone ever encouraged you to be brave when you already were brave? It's a little annoying, right? Don't worry about this. Well, I'm not worried about it. Why are you telling me that? You're going to have to worry about something if you keep telling me that. And here Paul telling them to continue in the faith. This is sound advice, sound doctrine. There are doctrines that misrepresent God's love. There are doctrines that I think misrepresent his attributes, there are doctrines that misrepresent man's freedom to choose. 
why not just trust the verses for what they say? Don't think the Greek is going to undo the meanings. It may enhance the meaning, but it will not undo it. Free will is what makes us in the image of God. We're beyond instinct. We have a will. And that will is not lost at death for the Christian. It is finalized. It is permanent. We call it eternity when we are glorified. So evangelism is not enough. There must be teaching and encouragement from the scripture. Paul was not saying to them, you continue in the faith and be a better you. Paul was saying you need to be like Christ, who denied himself and took up his cross. That's what we need to follow. Is there any born-again believer who disagrees with that? You may say, I try, but I struggle. God will receive that struggle. It is very important to God that we try, that we make the effort. This is why Paul and Barnabas established local churches wherever they made converts, so that those converts would continue in the faith. The alternative is to convert them and abandon them. The local church is the one place the believer should always find spiritual nourishment. Making converts cannot replace the local church, but it should strengthen the local church. He says here, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. I'll just say it this way. Anybody here in their 40s disagree with that? Maybe you younger ones have not yet really felt the heat from Satan's breath, but you will, and you will be ready for it so long as you stick to the Lord. Hating life will not improve your life. Skip that step. Stay focused on getting the job done. Do your job. If you were on an airplane, would you want the pilot while in the air to do his job? I think we would. The church is going to suffer tribulation. 2 Timothy 3. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Whether it is external or internal, you're going to be persecuted. Whether it is from Satan, the world, or your own rotten flesh, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be attacked for loving Christ. But... The persecution that Christians face will be nothing like the great tribulation that the unbelievers will suffer. When God begins to pour out his wrath upon this wicked and rebellious world, a Christ-hating culture, a sin-bloated world. 1 John, his first letter, chapter 3. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Pretty strong language, is it not? He did not say, don't be amazed that they don't like you. It's that they hate you. They're looking for your destruction. Jesus said, remember that the word that I, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Some teach that the church will go through the great tribulation. I fully disagree with that teaching. It discredits, again, the justice of God, his attributes, and it discredits the reasoning from the scripture. 
when the Lord says, I will spare you from the tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. What part of that is not understood? That's where we go back to, do not make obscure those things that are obvious just to support some doctrine that you picked up along the way. Verse 23. So when they had appointed leaders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord whom they had believed. Well, they're still in the region of Galatia. That's very important to everything we've been talking about this morning, and I'm going to hit it in just a few few minutes. You, you, you in Christianity... And I know that this message will eventually be broadcast on the internet and the radios. You who serve, why bother with the church and its many troubles unless it was important to God? Which makes it worth it to me. Why serve with so much discouragement and disappointment and setbacks? Why bother serving unless it is important to God? It is opposite of Jesus Christ to downsize the commandment to assemble. It's not a suggestion. It is a commandment. It's in the old, it's in the new. Here he says, so when they had appointed elders in every church, verse 23. The elders here, the Greek word is where we get our word presbytery from. Presbyteros in the Greek. I have to say it because I'm going to make a distinction between that word and another word, episkopos, because they are connected. Literally, where he says, so when they appointed elders, that word translated elders in the Greek means elders, just like that. Now, of course, we say elders in the faith, but they had not been here long enough to establish elders in the faith. The Jewish converts would have been elders in the sense they were familiar with the scripture of the Old Testament, but they were not elders in Christianity yet. And yet, they have to be appointed. Titus, when when Paul writes to Titus, the pastor, and he's laying out for him how to establish the church, it is a pastoral epistle, letter. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint Elders, there's that same word, presbyteros. He continues in Titus, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. Wait a minute. Now, first off, Paul commanded. There are New Testament commandments, and they are good. He calls the elders bishops. That Greek word, episkopos, where we get our word episcopalian from, uh, not that I'm promoting the Episcopalian. I'm not doing that. I'm just giving you the words. So the point is, there in 1 Timothy 5, 7, he is saying that the elders are the overseers. It's translated bishop, but it really overseer is a better word. Um, no one consulted me on that. Well, they're lost. All right? I still have some humor left, but evidently some of you don't. Anyway, back to this. Appoint elders for an, a bishop. So he, what he is saying, appoint elders for an overseer. It's the same person. Must be blameless as a steward of God. So the New Testament teaches that the elder and the overseer are the same. 
They are the pastors, Peter and Paul. Called them shepherds over the church. And again, shepherd, the Latin for shepherd is pastor. And so let me develop this a little more because we're talking about strengthening new converts, which would turn them into disciples, mature Christians to serve. When Paul called for the presbyteros to meet him, the elders, he then referred to them as the episkopos, uh, elders, overseers, pastors. John's Gospel, chapter 21, Jesus saying to his disciples, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That's the role of the pastor. And we're seeing it here, Paul setting it up in these places that he and Barnabas had established churches. Acts chapter 20. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And then in verse 28, along the same lines, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now they're shepherds. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's that word, episkopos. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And 1 Peter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And so, now I'm not saying that the church does not have other servants that are developed and mature Christians. What I am saying is that the pastor is the overseer and the elder at the same time. Just as Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ and a pastor also, and an evangelist, and a prophet. And so he he wore many hats. That's okay. But a church without a pastor is a body of believers without an appointed head. A church without an overseer is headless. That can't be good. The Bible says... It's bad for Christians to grieve their pastors. Now, I'm not saying these things because I'm a pastor and I have an opportunity to promote the office that the office of a pastor. I'm saying because I preach the word. And this is where God has led me to preach because the material is right there. He's setting up churches and in those churches he's putting pastors in those places. And Christians need to know what that means because you don't get it automatically. And I'll add to that. Christians will pick up what it means to be a pastor from other places that they themselves may not know, not in every case, but many times, and then they come to another church and they want that pastor to conform to the wrong image that they just left. Be on guard against those things. You always have to come back. What does the scripture say? And that's why we're covering this. The Bible says it is bad for Christians to grieve their pastors. Hebrews chapter 13. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Now, we're talking about the body. We're not talking about, you know, um, what kind of grass seed to plant in your lawn. He's not going to come and say, well, you've got to plant, you know, tall fescue over here. Anyway, obey those who rule over you. And that word is not by accident. He says it three times in that section. And be submissive so that he can do his job. What's the opposite? Be contentious. Avoid a divisive man after the first and second admonition. You don't get three strikes. You get two. And uh, this is biblical. For they watch out for your souls. I think if a man is a man of the word, he's going to be a man of prayer. And if he's going to be a man of the word and prayer, he's going to be a man led by the Spirit of God. And if he's led by the Spirit of God, he's going to agonize over people that attend the church that he pastors, whether they know it or not. 
when they go through things, when God puts them on his heart, he's going to really be involved spiritually on their behalf. And he's likely not going to come up and say, hey, I was praying for you last night. I'll turn my back to you and you can pat it a few times. Not going to do any of that. As long as a person attends a church of, that a man pastors, that pastor needs, needs to be 100% their pastor whether he likes them or not. The minute they depart that church, he's 100% not their pastor because he's human. He can't ca- carry that load. It's too much. He's got other things to do. A lot of people don't understand this. They think that, you know, he's supposed to just be this jolly character no matter what. Well, let's come back to Hebrews 13, 17. And for, they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Yeah, they're going to answer to God directly. And it will have nothing to do with you directly. It may have something to do with you, how he performed his ministry. But that is about him and God. He continues, let them do so with joy and not with grief. Is that possible? I mean, overall, is it possible for a pastor to pastor Christians with joy and not with grief? Sometimes. That's the answer. You don't have to like it. That is a fact. What what he has to do is do his job. And not be discouraged. He can't even allow himself to be overly encouraged. He has to find the balance. That is called grace. He continues, Paul does, let them do so with joy and not with grief. Now this concerns you. For that would be unprofitable for you. That's a profound statement, is it not? You will stand before the Lord too. And it might come up. You know, why did you behave with such a... Why were you just such a nuisance? For, for what reason? I don't want Christ to answer, ask me such questions. I try to go out of my way to not be rebuked. Should it be any other way? So Presbyteros, the elder, that draws attention to the pastor's spiritual maturity. He's supposed to behave like he's matured in the faith. Now, if it's outside the faith, he can be immature. This is why I'm giving up jokes. Episcopos, the overseer, this indicates the nature of the pastor's work. And so he is to be mature, and he is to look out for the flock, as I read those verses from Peter and later on, latter verses of Acts. The qualifications of a pastor are also outlined for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And immediately they are followed by the qualifications of servants. Yeah, servants have qualifications too. Over the years, I've come across too many Christians that think that they should just serve, whether they're qualified or not. Look it, there are people that want to give Bible studies while they're trampling the Word of God. They'll come into a church And they'll steal people away. And they think that this qualifies them to be preachers when the Bible clearly speaks against such behavior. Well, if you know the word of God, you'll be able to identify these things and you won't become bitter. You will have a spirit of love, but you'll know what truth is and what is not. There are gifts to men and there are gifts in the form of men. Do we get that? There are gifts of the spirit. 
And then there are gifts that God gives to the body of Christ. Many of you who serve here, especially you have been, you veterans, who have been with us and taken all sorts of hits over the years, you are gifts to the church. You are personally. Don't let Satan tell you you're not, because it ain't true if he tells you that. It says here, and they prayed with fasting. Well, abstaining, they were abstaining to heighten their attention to God, distancing themselves from natural urges to increase their spiritual sensitivity. Why? Because these were extraordinary times. They had to put leadership in place to protect these churches, and they didn't have time to develop the leaders according to the manual. New converts were appointed to leadership positions because there was no one else relatively new converts. Tim, later, Paul would write to Timothy in structuring the church, speaking about appointing pastors, not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And so, a, not a novice in contrast to an elder. And then, it says here, he com, uh, commended them to the Lord. Well, it's largely out of the hands of Paul and Barnabas now. God himself would have to protect his church, and he does that. And when God protects his church, he often uses pruning and discouragement to do that very thing. Trouble is on the horizon for this church. We know that from perhaps the earliest of the New Testament writings. Uh, you know, there are a few competitors, James and, and, and uh, Matt, Mark. But uh, Galatians, one of the earliest writings that we have in, in the New Testament. This is what he says to these Galatians. And that's who we're talking about. Lystra, Iconium, these people in that region. He's writing a letter to them. Because folks are going to come in. And they are going to bewitch the believers. Oh, you listened to Paul. You enjoyed his sermons. You enjoyed his teaching. You went to that church because of Paul. Well, let me get you out of that church. That's what was going happen, happening. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He writes that to them because they were being entangled again. Many of the Jews were coming back and telling them, oh, no, you got to do this. And then the Gnostics were coming in and saying, oh, you got that deeper information. You need to be entangling them. Then he says this to them. You ran well. You started off really hot. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You're losing the race. You started out winning and now you're behind. The only letter which Paul did not ask for prayer from them was the Galatian letter. Because he's got an attitude with them. And it's justifiable. He's not there. He's not writing this letter. It's like, oh, how are you? He is fighting for their lives. Remember I talked to you about the pastor who prays for the congregation, whether they know it or not, who agonize over the flock, whether they know it or not. This is what was happening with Paul. Galatians 4.20, listen to what he says. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have my doubts about you. There's not, there's not a lot of warm, fuzzy stuff in that. But it is love. Or else he just says, fine, they want to believe junk and go to hell, let them go do it. That would have been really bad. That's not what he does. I think Paul's rebukes broke their hearts. I think they received the rebukes and were ashamed of themselves. Oh, sure, there were probably a few who just, you know, hardened up. But overall, and why I say this is because much years later, Paul writes 
to the Corinthians. And this is what he says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. So you must do also. You see, Galatia's still standing. They didn't fold. They were being bewitched. They were lagging behind. Paul had his hard tone towards them, and he wins. The churches are still there. They're still serving. They're still, by consent, under the authority of Paul's pastorate. The trouble that they faced there in Galatia would have been far worse if Paul did not take, if he and Barnabas take these steps that we're reading about by fasting and praying and seeking the Lord. Who do we appoint as leaders? He continues here in verse 23. Uh, I should pause here. Every single thing I'm talking about has to do with us, the New Testament church. Every single thing I'm talking about this morning has to do with Christians. Satan is listening too. And if the Spirit of God says something to you, it's going to come down to you making a choice to believe what God put on your heart as right or to let the predator get you. He says, in whom they had believed. They believed in the Lord of the church, not the church. If you believe in the Lord of the church, that church is going to be strong. If you believe in the Lord of your religion, that religion will be strong. The, the opposite is unacceptable. The converts would have to learn to keep their faith in God. And by consent to Paul's leadership, they prevailed. Verse 24, and after... And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Evidently uneventful. We did not read of any much preaching going on there or, or any uh, resistance. So we move to verse 25. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Uh, well, they passed through Perga on their first mission uh, when they started this trip without mention of ministry. Could have been a, a lot of reasons why they're not stated. This time, their second visit to Perga, they preached the word, but there's no mention of the results. Uh, it continues, they went to Italia. Uh, apparently, uneventful there also, but they, they're discerning the Lord's leading to get home. There is an accelerated pace here, pace that suggests they were trying to get home before winter, which would have restricted their travel, and then they would have been stuck in uh, what is modern Turkey and not getting back to the church uh, that sent them out. Verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch. Now, that's not Antioch, Pisidia, where they were stoned. This is Antioch, Syria. There were many places named Antioch. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Well, that's Acts chapter 13. Separate to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of ministry. And that's what that church did. They obeyed the Spirit's leading, and they sent these men out. They were apostles of the church. Uh, again, Paul having a dual apostleship as one appointed by Christ himself. So God's grace brought them through. And so ends their first missionary journey, verse 27. Now when they had come and gathered and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so there's the local church. 
And they're reporting. They're starting out with, well, we, we got to Crete and we met this guy, Elimus, who tried to interfere with the gospel. And Barnabas probably said, and Paul smote that dude blind. And to teach him a lesson, he recovered, but he never forgot that lesson. And then there was Lystra, where Paul was stoned. We knew he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. And we gathered around him, and Paul gets up, and he's telling the church this. And the believers saw this, the new converts, and they stayed believers. They did not stay, what? Is this what happens to you? If you follow Jesus Christ, I'm out. That's not what happened. They may have been one or two, who knows? We know there were enough that did not, in verse 28. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, this is Antioch, Syria, and there was a lot of action going there. We're going to come to them pretty soon. But I want to close with this verse from Acts chapter 15, verses 35 and 36, because this tells us when Paul decides, you know, now we've got to go back to those churches that we established and do our job and make sure they're getting it done. I should have named the message, do your job. Anyway, coming back to Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, the Syria, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. you you got to love that. The word was paramount. You could take away the music. You could take away the children's ministry, the cafe, the bookstore, everything. But you can't take away the word of God. You can have all those things, but if you don't have the Word of God, you don't have a church. You have a community center. The Word of God dictates the rhythm. And those ministries are vital if they are in rhythm with the Word of God. I don't know why this is such a hard lesson for people. Well, I need more. Okay, for what? What do you need more for? Well, I have things in my kids growing up. Fine, go do those things. But don't strip the word of God from the church. Well, anyway, coming back to... I mean, it cringe when you hear somebody decide, well, I'm, going to, I'm looking for a new church. I want to see what kind of programs they have for my teens. Well, I, I mean, it's not bad if they've got programs for your teens, but what about the word? What if the word is wrong? What if the word is so dumbed down that you become a substandard churchgoer? Are you fine with that as long as they've got something for your teens? Well, each person has to answer that, but as for me and my house, I, I think that goes against the clear teaching of the Bible. Do you think there were t- teens in Antioch, Syria? No, there were not. Because the Bible would have told us. Of course, all right, I'm finishing the verse so we, we can go. And I hope I've given you a lot to think about this morning. Uh, that I hope if you, you haven't seen these things before, you can say, he's right again. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 15, while well, reread it, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. These men did their job. Let's pray. Our Father... Precept upon precept, line upon line. Your word, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but it stands forever. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We love you. We thank thank you for your word. And may you find us Christians dealing with discouragement head on 
not giving in, not writing our name down on the list of dropouts, but continuing in the faith. If you have been listening and you have never opened your heart to Christ, but you know what you need to do because Christ has been impressing it upon your heart to belong to him, to confess your sin, to be saved from the judgment to come. If you would like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then open your heart to him. Turn away from the sin of this bloated world, this anti-Christ generation that has been around for a long time. But Christ has been around longer. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else who can forgive me of my sin. No one else died for me. And no one else rose again to demonstrate that the offer is sure and complete. If you say, Lord Jesus, please receive me into your kingdom. Be my Savior and be my Lord from this day forward. God will honor that and you will belong to him. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not shy away from it. And these things we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.